we make our way through books of the Bible, and He has us here uh, in this text, and we rejoice in that. But, but also, it's appropriate for us to be here because this passage is a reminder to us that those whom the Lord uses are not perfect, but they are His. They are His. As we prepare to look to this text, I, uh, I want to speak to the kids for just a minute, okay? Uh, kids, let me have your attention, all right? Gotcha. Uh, I, I want you to listen for something in this passage. Um, Jesus is coming to see Thomas. He's coming to see Thomas for a very specific reason. I want you to listen for why he came to see Thomas. So later, you're with your parents at lunch. I want you all to talk about that. Why did Jesus come to see Thomas? Right? Let me pray for us as we look to God's Word. Father, we're here because called us to come. And you meet us here. Meet us here with your spirit, with your word, and we pray today as we come under your word that you would grant us your spirit to lead us in understanding. I pray that as we look to this text that I would decrease, that Jesus would increase, and that we would all be blessed. In Christ's name. Amen. Because this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. This is the word of the Lord. So how would you like to forever be known by your greatest struggle? <laughs> I'd like to forever be known by all of history by your weakness. How is Thomas known? The doubter. Doubting Thomas. Anyone here struggle with doubt? <laughs> Not asking for a show 
hands, but I would dare say if we raised them, many if not most would sheepishly put a hand in the air. What are we to do with that doubt? What are we to do with the same struggle that plagued Thomas? Well, actually, in the gospel accounts, Jesus has a lot to say about doubt. And most of the time he speaks about doubt, he tells us, do not doubt. Again, begs the question. The Savior is telling us not to doubt. What do we do with the doubt that plagues us? As we think about that question, I want us to distinguish for a moment between the presence of doubt and the embrace of doubt. Two very different positions relative to doubt. In the gospel accounts, when Jesus speaks about doubt, I believe that what he is saying is do not embrace the doubt that comes your way. Later in the book of Jude, the, the second to last book in the Bible, Jude verse 22 admonishes us to have mercy on the doubter. Doubting Thomas, the person that we label as a doubting Thomas, the doubting Thomas that we find here in Scripture, they are those who refuse to believe without a direct personal experience, particular type of doubt that we need to engage as we look to this text. We're going to engage with Thomas because we need to explore his struggle, but I also want you to hear this. Thomas is not the main character in this text. This is a story about Jesus. And in this story about Jesus, we see Jesus pursuing the doubter. We see Jesus coming to Thomas. Now, though Jesus is the main character in this text, if we're to understand his character in this text, we better understand him as we see who Thomas is. We understand Jesus by understanding more about Thomas. So who was Thomas? The text opens by saying he was one of the twelve. Twelve were the, the disciples, the, the ones who would become, eleven of whom would become the apostles. Thomas was one of them. Now the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't give us a lot of background story on Thomas other than offering his name, but John, in his gospel, he does include some information for us about Thomas. We see him first in John chapter 11. There in John chapter 11, Jesus and the disciples, they're up in Galilee, and they get word about Lazarus. Lazarus fallen sick. Lazarus has died. Jesus says, we're going to go to him, but the disciples say, hang on a minute, Jesus. The last time we were down there, they tried to stone you. Thomas said, let us also go with him that we may die with him. Thomas, the doubter, seems to be here a dutiful soldier. We hear about Thomas again in John chapter 14. 
there in John chapter 14, Jesus is, is talking to the disciples. He said, I'm going to go to my father's house. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'll come back. But Jesus says, you know where I'm going, and you know the way. Thomas says, time out, Jesus. We don't know where you're going. So how are we to know the way? Put all this together, and we get a little bit more of a glimpse of the person of Thomas. He was, as I said, a bit of a dutiful soldier, and yet he couldn't seem to grasp the bigger picture of what Jesus was doing. Now, he wasn't alone in that, but he seemed to voice it. The text here tells us more. It opened up actually talking about that first night when the disciples were there back in the upper room on the first night of Easter, the resurrection night. And all the disciples were there, well, not all of them. Thomas wasn't. He wasn't there. What does that tell us? We have to make some judgment calls here. Maybe Thomas was just late for dinner. I tend to think there was more going on. We put the whole character sketch together. We see that most likely Thomas is intentionally isolating himself. Maybe it was some predisposition of his personality, but he had to get away by himself to process these events on his own. That first Easter night, the rest gathered together to be together. Not Thomas. He distanced himself. He isolated himself alone. And because of it, he missed Jesus. Because he missed Jesus, he struggled. Now again, I'm, I'm imagining, but I don't think it's too far a stretch to the, the, the text seems to jump over this week, but I think you and I both know that Mary and the disciples did not have a one-time discussion about seeing the risen Jesus. When we have big life events happen, it's all we talk about. I imagine over the course of that week, Mary and the disciples couldn't help themselves but continue talking continuously about Jesus seeing him alive. With that in mind, I wonder if verse 25 is Thomas's desperate cry to shut them up. What does he say? Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas done there. He's embraced his doubt. Put a demand before Jesus, and in his demand, he is starting down a very dark hole. He's moving from the presence of doubt to the full embrace. That's what it means to embrace our doubt. To say, I won't believe you until you prove yourself by meeting the demands that I place before you. Where are we tempted to do that with Jesus? 
What demands are we tempted to place before Jesus that he might prove either his existence or his worthiness? Jesus, I'll believe you if you provide a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a spouse. Jesus, I'll believe you if you heal me of my sickness. Jesus, I'll believe you if you provide a child. Do you place these demands on Jesus? That he might prove his existence, that he might prove his worthiness. The the presence of those demands are, are sort of an indicator light on the dashboard telling us that there is something going on that that doubt has become more than an unwelcome presence in our lives. It has become a guide walking us down the dark hole of unbelief. Do you feel uncomfortable when we begin to talk about doubt in this way? Do you begin to feel uncomfortable when we talk about those demands that we're tempted to place on Jesus in this way? what Thomas has done. Thomas has set a criteria for his belief in Jesus. But remember, Jesus is the main character in this story. What did Jesus do? He came to the doubter. Jesus pursued the doubter. He pursued Thomas because he loved him. See the arrogance of Thomas here and perhaps see our own arrogance of what it is like to put before the king of kings a set of hoops that we're going to demand he jump through so that we believe in him. Sin is ugly in all its forms, but Jesus graciously pursued Thomas and Jesus graciously pursues us because he loves his own. For some of us, doubt is an unwanted guest in our mind. And we wrestle. And in that wrestling, where do we go next? We often question our place with Jesus. How could I have a place in Him if I struggle with these doubts, but I want to encourage you with this truth. You know, they say it takes two to tango. It also takes two to wrestle. And if you are wrestling with your doubts, then you are by definition not alone. Yes, there are nagging questions that come to all of us, but in the wrestling there is also the hound of heaven. and He is there. The wrestling is evidence that he has not abandoned you to the dark hole of despair. And so how are you experiencing him? How are you experiencing him in the wrestling? Do you hear him calling you? He came to Thomas that night. And he came to call the doubter to belief. His first words to Thomas. That night, and by the way, eight days later, that would have been the next Sunday, the 
The convention of counting days would have started at the beginning of that day. Eight days later, we're talking about the next Sunday night. Thomas is there with the disciples in the, other room, in the upper room. And Jesus came to them and utters the same first words he had uttered the previous Sunday night. The previous resurrection night. Peace be with you. Michael unpacked those words for us last week as he read the prior passage. But peace there is shalom. It's peace in all its dimensions. And Thomas has evidence for the other disciples, for Jesus and for the world, that he does not yet have it. Do you? You have this peace that is marked by the presence of Jesus. Peace in the storm. Even a peace in the storm of doubt. Thomas, at this point, was still the master of his own thinking. Or at least, he was trying to be. He had received the apostolic witness. Jesus had presented himself to the apostles. And they had communicated this truth of the resurrected Savior to Thomas. And yet, at this point... He refused to trust in their word. And then Jesus did something astounding. He met Thomas's demands. All of them. And in his words and his actions, I don't hear or sense some sharp tone of anger. Only a calm invitation. We see it in verse 27 as Jesus speaks to Thomas your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side those are Jesus's words and then the call it's a gentle rebuke but it's all invitation Jesus tells Thomas do not disbelieve but believe Do not disbelieve. Those words sound a little bit awkward to our ears. They're they're adjectives here. Disbelieve and believe. They're they're actually adjectives. It's not exactly translated that way here. but, But an adjective is a descriptor of a thing or a person. Jesus is saying, don't let unbelief be your descriptor. Don't be unbelieving, but be believing. That was was Jesus' invitation. It was his call. And so did Thomas take Jesus up on that that call to to actually touch his his hand and his side? Don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but I don't think so. I don't think so. It appears that Thomas received this gentle rebuke and this gracious invitation. It appears that Thomas stood before Jesus in reverent awe and joyfully humbled himself with a powerful confession of Christ. My Lord and my God. It's clear. It's powerful. It's a confession of the deity of Jesus Christ. And in this powerful statement, Thomas adds the same word twice. My Lord. 
my Lord, my God. This is personal for Thomas. Jesus has called the doubter to belief. And doubting Thomas has come out of the dark hole of despair into saving faith. Where does this faith come from? The whole of John's gospel, the account that we have been reading for the better part of these past two years, it tells us that this gift of faith is a sovereign work of God's grace. That God imparts that gift of faith and He has gifted it purposefully to Thomas in this event. But the whole of John's gospel also tells us that that faith that is sovereignly given is a faith that we are to actively seek out and respond to. It's both and. God does it. And we take hold of it. This belief is rooted in knowing and embracing the person and work of Jesus Christ Jesus says that to Thomas, actively take hold of me. No longer allow unbelief to be your defining mark. Is there anything worse than a limp handshake? No. What does a limp handshake communicate? Weakness. Weakness of presence and conviction. Limp handshake says, I don't know who I am. I'm really not sure I care who you are. But I guess I'm here. Jesus says, get rid of the limp handshake. Get rid of the limp handshake of embracing doubt and take hold of of belief. Yes, there will still be lingering doubts, nagging questions, but wrestle with them. Stay in the fight. And Jesus promises to be in that fight with us. I think we see Jesus staying in the fight with Thomas and what comes next. I believe what comes next is Jesus is commissioning Thomas. I believe he's commissioning the doubter to go out. Verse 29, it's a bit of a mild rebuke, but it's also a loving one. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I believe it's Jesus ushering Thomas out. He had done it the prior week with the disciples. He's doing it here with Thomas, remember, those whom the Lord uses aren't perfect, but they're His. Jesus is not disgusted by the doubter. He didn't dismiss the doubter. He commissioned him, but He didn't do so blindly. And that's the connection, I believe, to verses 30 through 31. As we look to 30 and 31, we need to telescope out. We need to see the big picture. That's what Thomas couldn't do earlier and in telescoping out we see the grace and wisdom of Jesus it would have been unloving if Jesus would have simply said stop doubting bye-bye good now what he did for Thomas is not what he does for us he gives us the means of grace he gives us a means by which we are to stay in the fight and that mean those means 
for the Word of God. Verses 30 and 31, John gives us his purpose in writing this gospel account. He tells us that he has given us these signs, many more of which were out there, but he gave us these that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. The we who might believe are we who did not see, but we can see through the word of God given to us here. We are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Later, Peter would write about us. In 1 Peter 1, 8, he said, Though you have not seen him, you believe in him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible joy filled with glory. 2 Peter then, 2 Peter 1, he's speaking to us again, who cannot see. And he says, you've got something more sure than your ability to see. You've got the word of God. In 2 Peter 1, Peter is saying, I saw Jesus transfigured, as Jeff talked about earlier. I heard when God the Father spoke down words of affirmation from glory, and he said, you have something better than that. You have something better than my eyewitness account and my earwitness account. You have the word of God, so cling to it. Jesus sent Thomas out to speak the apostolic witness that is recorded for us here in the word. How does he call us to see? Romans 10, well, Romans speaks to the message, the messenger, and all the scripture speaks to the power source. The message, Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. We who cannot see can hear. But what about the messenger, Romans 10, 14, and 15, and how are they to hear without someone preaching, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? Jesus is sending the apostles out. He's sending Thomas out. And in a matter of a few short weeks from this meeting, he would give them the power source, the Holy Spirit, who would come in power upon them and all who believe. It comes together in Thomas as Jesus commissioned the doubter. We don't have the rest of Thomas's story from Scripture, but we have it from the reliable source of church history. This Thomas, this doubter, went out in power, taking the gospel to India where he would be an evangelist, a minister, and a martyr. The doubter with the limp handshake became a firm believer who died for his conviction because he had had an encounter with a living Christ. Do you wrestle with doubt? You're in good company. You're in good company among the apostles and you're in good company in this room. But doubt does not have to be your defining mark. Our God is sovereign and He calls us to respond. That point of response is our point of obedience. And that point can be scary. Is Jesus coming to you 
this morning in the midst of the struggle? Is Jesus calling you this morning to believe? Is Jesus commissioning you to go out? We can be tempted, like Thomas, to put up walls of demand. Some of us hear that call and we actively resist. Others of us fall prey to the lie of the devil that the presence of fear and doubt must mean that we are not true believers. But hear this. Obedience doesn't mean the absence of doubt and fear. It means that we refuse to allow those things to be our defining mark. I've used this illustration before, but I put it back before you now again. I believe that repelling offers us a picture of, of leaning in to this fear and doubt at the point of obedience. Have any of you ever been repelling? Those of you who haven't, perhaps you've seen someone else do it. Here's the thing about repelling. You, you, you tie a rope around it. Or actually, you're connected to a rope, and hopefully that rope is tied to something immovable. <laughs> and then you stand at the edge of the cliff, the edge of the wall, and you turn around backward, and you have to do something that goes against every instinct in your being. You have to lean back. You see, standing over that cliff is a scary thought. But to go down, it requires obedience. It requires you to lean back. And the beauty of it all is that at the point where we lean back and we feel the strength of that rope, we, we stand perpendicular to the face of a cliff and we look back with a calm that has come over us and get this view that is more beautiful than anything you can imagine that you would not experience if you did not if you did not lean back into and against the fear and doubt. Jesus calling you today? Is he calling you to believe? Is he commissioning you to go out? It's scary. There are doubts that will nag. Don't let them define you. Don't embrace that doubt Lean into it. And there, still feel the strength of Jesus. Feel the presence of Jesus sustaining you. Since that's what we see, I believe, in Thomas. And that is what I believe to be our call today. Brothers and sisters, do not be disbelieving, but be believing. He is worthy. And Jesus, we praise you. You loved Thomas. You came to Thomas. Call him. Commission him. You love the doubter. You pursue the doubter, and that includes us. And we praise you for it. I pray that we would be able to receive that message of hope today be changed no be changed by you it's in your name we pray amen